Hello everyone, it's April 4th, 2023. So what are NASA's slightly longer term plans for Mars? Well, lots of low cost robotic missions and hopefully lots of commercial partnerships too. The plan is to do this about every 25 months. Use all the windows, I hope they can do it. So let's discuss it and lift off. We've got the title. Welcome to episode 403 of the Overworld Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So, Dennis, have you ever played a game called Satisfactory? I have not. Have you ever played a game called Factorio? That sounds familiar. I've never heard okay. of Satisfactory, but. So, Satisfactory is Factorio in 3D. Okay, I'm starting to. I, I just looked up some screenshots and I've, <laughs> I've seen this game. I've never played it myself, okay. but. Okay. okay. So, so, the idea is you are dropped on an alien planet. Um, and you're given like some really simple tools and you wind up building like mining rigs and, uh, like big old factories and you, you're in Factorio, you are, um, building, I think a spaceship is like your final, like your final goal, but you wind up building these huge factories that are just chains of different machines stepping through different stages in, in manufacturing and in satisfactory um, actually pretty quickly in the game, you build a, a space elevator foundation and they drop in a space elevator. And so a lot of the game is um, just building uh, useless resources that they want you to put into the space elevator. And you work for uh, a faceless corporation called fix it F F I C I T. I think F I C S I T, but fix it. Um, and it's like definitely an evil corporation and you definitely have a very kind sounding, uh, robotic voice talking to you. That is a hundred percent evil, um, <laughs> just with a nice face on it anyway. So when you're building a lot of the time, you're building the same thing over and over again. Like if you're laying down a foundation and so you could click and place foundation tiles one by one, or you can use a, uh, one of the alternate building modes um, that lets you put things down in, in patterns and place things in a certain way. And so the the most common building mode that you'll use other than the normal building mode is one that lets you build a bunch of items in a row. And so you can like click and then move your mouse way off in the distance and you'll just build 10 foundation tiles all at once. And the name for this mode is Zoop. So you can just click and then Zoop and there you go. And as soon as I saw it, it struck me as the most Dennis phrase I've ever heard. <laughs> and it just, it makes me very happy because I'm like, yeah, I definitely want to just zoop this out. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely, that is my, <laughs> I get the aesthetic a hundred percent. Exploring Mars together. We have a plan going forward for like what the next decade uh, for future explorations of Mars, or actually beyond the next decade, I think, yeah. uh, for how this is going to be carried out. So uh, faster, cheaper, I guess is the word, right? Or the two keywords, or even faster and even cheaper, perhaps. <laughs> I'd just say, and uh, consistent, I guess, is the, they use the word sustainability, but that really means consistency is kind of... Yeah, that's actually a good point, because like, you know, in order to do these missions, you have to be launching them at a certain time. And so you have a timetable that you really have to make. And uh, that's kind of interesting that the idea is to be consistent. So does that show how, 
I guess Mars exploration technology has like matured over the years because maybe that's a possibility now because normally I wouldn't say so. I mean, you know, things might fall behind by several years and so we'll have to wait and see what happens, but it seems difficult to launch at least one mission to Mars like every, was it two and a half years? Something like that? Yeah. Ballpark, yeah. That's pretty ambitious. Uh, I, I mean, of course, this is, you know, multiple entities doing this and working with NASA and so forth. But still, it seems like that everyone has to be on time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that just seems difficult. And And Mars sample return is only making it more difficult because that's, uh, you know, by far the largest budget item for Mars exploration. And it's kind of just sucking a lot of the uh, the funds from other projects. Um, it's not exclusively responsible, but for something like Veritas recently getting boned, they, uh, you know, Mars sample return was certainly part of that budgetary issue, as well as Psyche and Europa Clipper. But yeah, so I guess that's that's kind of the idea is how, how, do you, how, do you, how can you do this consistently every single, you know, window, like literally they want to launch something mm-hmm. every Mars window opportunity. And, uh, you know, this Exploring Mars Together is the name of this draft plan. And one of the, I guess, there's a few different ways to get at that, you know, being able to launch at every window. One is to make sure you do it or do it at a low cost. So, you know, maybe if you're only going to spend 100 million to 300 million, these kind of cheaper missions, you can get away with that. If you leverage the fact that the commercial sector is now mm-hmm. a much bigger player uh, and not in the way where they were just contractors that were, you know, told to, you know, build something, now they themselves are players and try to leverage that to be able to hit every window. Um, take advantage of the international collaborations that are now available. Uh, we got more countries than ever that have been able to reach Mars. Um, you know, India and now China has gotten there. I mean, hold your breath on collaborating with China, uh, unfortunately. But um, but yeah, no. Uh, but like, still, you've got Europe, you've got India, you've got the UAE, you've got other players coming into the into the field as well. And so, to try to, I guess, leverage all those together. And it's important because one Mars sample return will be a big home run, but that's if it works, <laughs> you know, if, if it's successful. And, you know, there obviously a lot of that money is going to making sure that it can be successful, but there's a lot of science that Mars sample return doesn't necessarily do quite right. And you shouldn't just forsake all of Mars, like the rest of Mars science possible, that, that's possible for just the one kind of home run mission. And so as a result, I, I thought this was kind of remarkable because even though we have sent things uh, since 2013, that was the last U.S. orbiter, MAVEN. So about a decade ago was the last time the U.S. sent an orbital spacecraft to Mars. Hmm. Uh, now, now, we've had insight and perseverance and a friggin' helicopter zooting around on the surface, which is, right. <laughs> which is awesome. And, you know, obviously, like, not something to, you know, not, not to snub that, <laughs> of course. But, to, you know, the thing about orbital assets is that's a key part of being able to relay from the surface to these orbital assets and then have them communicate to Earth. Because direct-to-Earth transmission isn't always available for something that you land on the surface. And even if it is something that you have built in there, depending on the time of day on Mars and where the Earth is, you might not be able to have a direct line of sight. And the deep space network is very, very oversubscribed. And so interestingly enough, as part of the initiatives um, that this uh, draft plan calls for, um, which longer term, it's still now that it's a draft plan, the science community is going to kind of get back to it and they're going to, you know, iterate on this. But one of them is just more infrastructure. And that doesn't just mean more like, you know, relay spacecraft around Mars, but also 
to, I guess, beef up our ground networks here on Earth um, and get that, you know, to be more uh, capable because, you know, we've got the really, we've got the three really big dishes for DSN. I don't know. I feel like it'd be good to just build more because <laughs> that's something where you don't have to go and build a spacecraft and hope that it launches fine and it makes it to its destination fine and it does the science fine. You just build the dish here at home, you know? I mean, yeah. it's going to cost money, but hopefully we can find that kind of money because it's important. I mean, it, it is kind of crazy that like DSN is so oversubscribed. It's, it's crowned infrastructure. Like it's infinitely reusable, you know, for right. all intents and purposes. It, it just, it's such a low level class of equipment. Like it's so simple, relatively speaking. It's so cheap, relatively speaking. Um, I guess I actually, I don't, I don't know how cheap it is. Do you know what it would cost to do, you know, even like a one dish expansion to DSN? Okay. So, so uh, I found an article or not an article, but uh, some in the NASA spaceflight forums that DSN proposed that by the end of fiscal year 2025, the DAEP or DAPE, the DSN Aperture Enhancement Project will provide six new 34 meter BWG antennas, each equipped with yada yada at a total cost of $362.4 million. So, you know, it's hundreds of millions, but again, when you're supporting billions of dollars worth of assets, right? I mean, just between, you know, Hubble and JWS, actually, not Hubble, but uh, JWST and all the missions that we have on Mars. I mean, over the years, that's got to come up to billions of dollars worth of deep space spacecraft that we're communicating with, with the DSN. MSR was something like a billion dollars? Oh, Mars sample return? I don't think they disclosed Oh, I guess, I, guess I, I guess I'm confusing MSR and MER. Let me see. One, 1.08 billion. So $1 billion for MER. And that, that's MER. That's not oppor- or that's not uh, curiosity. Or perseverance or, <laughs> you know, like... And, and, yeah, else. and you said it was $300 million to build a new... How many new... That's- that's for six 30-meter class dishes. $300 million. That's nothing. It's it's not as like sleek and eye-catching as a new rocket, which is why Congress probably doesn't want to pay for it. But like, come on. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, like I was, I was going to say, it seems like a necessary part of the infrastructure necessary to do all these other cool things. So yeah, you kind of have to pay for it. It might not yeah. Look cool, it's like, but it's like buying a new cell phone and then refusing to pay for a plan that includes 5G, or just not wanting to build cell phone towers. And it's like, well, you need those too, yeah. otherwise these devices don't really work. Like you have to, yeah. you know, create the infrastructure too. Mm-hmm. I found a thing here. It says that oh, this is on uh, Stack Exchange. It says that um, it costs ten thousand dollars for a contact with the Voyager spacecraft. Like that's how much. Mm. I, I guess just because they're so distant. Well, I wonder. I wonder how they're calculating that cost because like that can't just be the electricity, right? And it's probably not the electricity and the people i wonder if it's the like the lost value of contacting anything else i think if it's if it's anything like so so sometimes i'll hear stats like that with uh, astronomy observatories where it's like oh you know it costs ten thousand dollars a night to operate such and such an observatory and i think that might be some combination of how much it costs in maintenance over the year you know divide that by 365 Mm -hmm. (laughs) to get like you know per night because you're not really it's not like you spend that much per night like you know it's getting charged that but but yeah between i think the the electricity the maintenance the personnel costs um you can probably you know add up a bunch of things like that to get to this you know 
order of magnitude and what like maybe even amortizing out the construction costs or something right i was thinking that too yeah if if, if it has a an expected lifetime you can include that because because that's that's not nothing if it's you know if it costs if one of these because these new dishes these 30 meter ones are uh evidently going to replace the 70 meter ones in a few years um mm. just because better technology so i guess they don't need the uh the aperture uh, to be quite that big yeah. anymore and so, but like, yeah, at 50 million a pop, even if they were to last 10 years, that's 5 million a year that it costs to build it. And so you could think of that in terms of. <laughs> well, and like, what, what else does humanity do that has a value that doesn't degrade? Like nothing we build uh, lasts forever. Nothing we manufacture lasts for very long, but like paying to do science, once you have that knowledge that data that you collected you basically get to keep that data undegraded forever and like we're constantly learning new things from old data as we develop new data analysis techniques it's just like come on i feel like it's fair to say that the orbital mechanics podcast strongly endorses this draft plans uh, <laughs> initiative to build more infrastructure particularly on earth uh, to support future mars exploration yep so that sounds like a like a campaign platform to me <laughs> So uh, also included in this draft plan were these uh, three science themes, uh, kind of big pictures uh, that they settled on. And one, uh, the, the classic headliner, uh, explore the potential for Martian life. And so in addition to Mars sample return, which would be able to literally look at you know, pieces of Mars rock uh, in a way that is even better than uh, looking at Martian meteorites, which are great, and we've got a little less than 300 of them so far. Uh, out of the tens of thousands that have, of meteorites that have been collected on Earth, but um, you know this this gives you you know not only do you have the Martian space rock, but you also have the context that you got that rock from in a very controlled uh, environment. It wasn't sitting in Antarctica for some number of tens of thousands or millions of years potentially <laughs> before you found it. I don't know how long you tend to sit there, but uh, but in any event, that's not the only way to look for Martian life. Of course, right? There's also the biosignatures. There's the methane that we've been seeing on there and trying to figure that out, as well as just uh, characterizing the habitability of the different environments there. Um, another one of the two or another. One of the three science themes. And this one I, I, I needed to kind of like look under the hood a little bit because they said, you know, support human exploration of Mars. And I was like, I, what does that really mean? Like, you know, human exploration is is one thing. What is the science theme behind that for robots before humans get there? And I mean, it makes sense afterwards. You know, it's basically uh, kind of figure out what would be the sort of science that humans can do, right? You kind of figure that out by having the robots basically learn new things and then ask new questions and then eventually get to the point where, all right, well, that would be something we would want humans to, you know, be able to to solve and figure out sometime in the 2040s. Um, identifying, you know, where ice is on Mars. You know, we had different, you know, broad brush pictures of that, but we're always trying to refine our understanding because, you know, humans landing near ice, uh, in-situ resource utilization, all that good stuff, um, as well as uh, potential health and ha safety hazards, right? There's always going to be those, uh, the idea of, you know, do we want to have, how, how are we going to shield humans when they land on Mars? Because that's going to be something that's uh, pretty serious and pretty significant when we actually get the first humans there, if we do. And uh, yeah, and then basically, in addition to just not only just identifying those science objectives, but making observations to prepare the humans for the science that they'll want to do once they're there. And then the third science theme is kind of, I think of this one as just, this is just the raw science of Mars, right? 
And so the geology and the climatology, they call it the, you know, discover dynamic Mars um, because, you know, the geology and climatology are by their very nature dynamic. They're changing and evolving over time. And Mars has a very, very rich history uh, in terms of both. And so to make sure that you're still studying and learning and, you know, building up our knowledge about these topics and not just focusing too much on Mars sample return, which again, the budget on that is ballooning. Um, I didn't realize uh, that where we are with uh, with MSR yet, uh, it's, it's actually right now still a series of uh, preliminary design reviews. And so they haven't reached that so-called uh, key decision point C yet, where they kind of you know, formalize the budget and the schedule for the mission. And so whether it's going to, whether it's predicted to cost $5 billion or $6 billion now over however many years, uh, we don't have any official word of that yet from NASA. And so that'll definitely be uh, good to know. And I should mention ESA too is a major partner in, in Mars sample return. They also talk, right, about these, these four initiatives, uh, which includes the launching at every opportunity with these cheaper and faster options, which we, we chatted about, and, and building the infrastructure. Um, but these other initiatives also include uh, just building on the technologies that we have. So entry, descent, landing. Uh, I like that aerial mobility is is called out as a, as a specific key technology to develop. So yeah, some more Mars helicopters. And uh, subsurface exploration, so drilling much deeper than we have before, right? Trying to uh, get to the subsurface, not necessarily send robots down lava tubes, but just be able to get underneath the surface and uh, and sample it like uh, Mars's heat probe was an example of something trying to do that. And then um, their fourth initiative is also to uh, uh, partner with uh, all communities. And so this is really a matter of trying to make sure that this, you know, for the next 20 years when we're doing Mars science that we're, uh, that NASA and ESA are being inclusive of, you know, underrepresented groups. Uh, I know NASA has a number of initiatives for getting people from underrepresented groups into, into STEM um, and, you know, NASA kind of roles particularly. Um, and they also, you know, like to do fun things for opportunities for the public to get involved. So whether that's citizen science or, you know, putting your name on spacecraft, like to do those kind of uh, things to get the public engaged because, uh, right, we've already thrown the word billions out a number of times in regards to U.S. dollar bills. <laughs> and so you definitely want to make sure that the public is, uh, at the end of the day, supporting all this. And um, yeah, and finally, to kind of res respect the stewardship of Mars. I, I do appreciate having a line in there because, you know, I think the moon is a bit more worrisome, uh, even though there's no life on the moon. I'll just say it. I'm not going to say there's probably no life on the moon. There is no life on the moon, uh, other than maybe some microbes that uh, Israel landed there a few years ago. But um, otherwise, uh, you know, we shouldn't be kind of just showing up to these other worlds and just, you know, ultimately strip mining the surfaces and just <laughs> destroying them um, because they really are, you know, pristine environments that, you know, we need to respect when we get there. Yep. So, uh, and, 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 and like all good uh, draft plans, they have a nice uh, timeline, which of course is, you know, aspirational and very much a draft at this point. But uh, some of the key highlights I think is, is cool is that um, is to have Mars sample return uh, actually, you know, the samples back to earth by 2035, which uh, is just a little over 10 years away. So not, you know, it doesn't seem infinitely far. And then these uh, low cost missions, um, probably wouldn't really be able to get that sort of going until uh, the tw like till 2030 and after, and then start to hit those windows. We're not, I guess, quite prepared to you know send a hundred million dollar Mars mission uh, 
for every window between now and then. Right now, that was another thing that kind of stunned me is that uh, right now, other than Mars sample return, the only other NASA Mars mission in development is Escapade, which is a it's a small sat, which is flying on a new Glenn nominally next year, which <laughs> uh, you can see my eyes kind of rolling right now. But uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see how that works because I still don't quite understand new Glenn launching a small sat to Mars. I mean, I guess it does take a lot of Delta V, but I thought that vehicle was going to be much more powerful than that. So Yeah, right along. Multiple missions going at yeah, once. Yeah, I was going to say. Like gotta, commercial yeah, shit. Yeah, it, it, it'll... It'll have. There's more to the story than just that, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. In the mid 2030s, uh, they've got a uh, a medium cost mission slated, so uh, more than just you know a few hundred million dollars. Uh, an example that they threw out that was brought up in the decadal was the Mars Life Explorer, and so this is a New Frontiers class uh, lander mission. And then uh, David, like you had uh, uh, talked about, um, how long in the future is this? Uh, this draft plan kind of goes extends into the 2040s where uh, uh the idea would be for humans to actually reach mars in the late 2030s uh and then the 2040s is when we would have this exploration happening there and so um yeah i thought it's uh it's an interesting document it covers a lot of stuff and it's uh only next week i mean i guess i'll give i'll mention this is that the uh the Mars Exploration Program, uh, MEP, um, planning team came up with this one, but it's the, uh, I think it's the, it's a nested acronym. I can't remember the whole thing, but basically the Mars, I think it's the MEP's Mars Working Program or something like that, uh, that's having a, uh, a meeting uh, to discuss uh, this kind of stuff next week. And uh, I think it's uh, April 11th and 12th. And it's in D.C., but it's also a hybrid meeting, and you need to register, but you, it does not cost money. And so you can actually, you know, if you think you can, you got something to add to this, go for it. All right, so let's do three short and sweets this week. And Dennis, what's the first? First up, seized assets in Kazakhstan threatens Soyuz 5 program. Last month, Kazakhstan seized property from Roscosmos at the Baikonur Cosmodrome in conjunction with a lawsuit against SE-ENKI, the organization that manages the Russian space agency's ground infrastructure. The lawsuit's claim is for 2 billion rubles, or 20.3 million US dollars, for alleged non-fulfillment of the contract for construction of the Baitarek complex, a joint project between the two nations to modernize the old Zenit launch complex for new Soyuz 5 rockets. While the current situation won't stop Soyuz or Proton launches from Baikonur, it does effectively stop the development of the Soyuz 5 vehicle, whose design began in 2015, but has never left the preliminary design stage. And then next up, Virgin Orbit layoffs. After a last-minute deal to raise funding fell through, Virgin Orbit announced it was laying off 85% of its workforce, or 675 people, with the remainder to focus on winding down the company. That final failed effort to raise money involved a $200 million rescue offer from investor Matthew Brown, a man with discrepancies about his business experience that journalists couldn't reconcile and whom Virgin Orbit couldn't determine actually had the money to bail out the company. Before Virgin Orbit's Launcher 1 failed to reach orbit earlier this year, its most recent earnings call stated that they ended the quarter with $71 million cash on hand and an operating loss of $50.5 million. Finally, uh, Rosotics announces a large-scale 3D printer. A new metal wire centering technology that uses a magnetic field instead of a laser to melt feedstock has been developed. Rosotics says that their Mantis printer can run on a single 240-volt outlet. 
common even in U.S. homes for powering laundry machines. It does not require use of an annealing oven, and so can produce parts up to 8 meters in diameter. They will sell their printers under a hardware-as-a-service contract. Very cool. That is cool. It's a cool technology. Lasers are inefficient, um, and induction heaters are, like, the most efficient. Like, it's it's basically 100% efficient. Like, not really, but, like, it, it is super, super, super efficient. Almost as efficient as, like, a space heater, right? Yeah. Like, technically, if what you're trying to do is create heat you can achieve 100% efficiency, like your only losses are to the environment. But you can turn energy into heat perfectly efficiently because that's what it wants to do anyway. Okay, so let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. Uh, we have four winners. We have Uncle Willie, Cy Kyle, Hydrek, and Robert Shaw. And the clue was tub and toe. It took us a while to come up with that clue, Dennis. But uh, <laughs> it's I pretty think good. We did a good job. We yeah, it's pretty yeah, good. We have some winners, so it worked out. So Ben, you have the actual explanation of what this clue is in reference to. So what is it? Yeah, this week in spaceflight history is the fifth of April, nineteen sixty-three. Here's the event. This is pretty cool. A Pontiac Catalina tows uh, M2F1, an experimental aircraft. So. Um, I got a little bit of a, uh, admin issue to clear up first here. I couldn't figure out where the heck you guys got the 5th of April. Obviously it wasn't you two. It was whoever put it into the, <laughs> into the Tawissif notes that we have. But I was like, where in the world is April 5th coming? Because, um, the first tow of this vehicle, we'll get into details here what all this means, but the first tow happened on March 1st. The first flight happened on August 16th. So what happened on April 5th, figured it out. It was the first time that the nose actually lifted off of the runway. So I'm super happy that four people got this because uh, I'm, I'm not sure I would have been able to track this one down, <laughs> uh, being that this wasn't March 1st or August 16th. Okay, so uh, admin done. Let's talk about uh, aircraft. M2F1 was a lightweight lifting body proof of concept that NASA built. Um, M uh, M and the M2 means uh, manned, and F means flight, maybe? I'm not sure. Um, but th this should be a pretty uh, familiar uh, nomenclature scheme. There's, what, M2, F2, and a couple other ones. So anyway, uh, M2, F1 is this, this lifting body uh, aircraft. Uh, it's shaped like a wedge of cheese. Um, people... Uh, actually nicknamed it the flying bathtub, but I think it looks more like a wedge of cheese. It has sort of this flat top uh, and a rounded belly. And the the flat top is roughly triangular. It's got very roundy corners for a triangle, but it's, it's roughly triangular uh, looking straight down on it. And then looking at it at the, on the side, it's also uh, sort of wedge shaped. The belly is thinner at the nose and thicker at the tail. Um, so very, very cheese wedgy looking to me. So on the bottom is the, this rounded belly on the top is a flat surface, but it's got a domed cockpit peeking out the top. And then, uh, in the back are two vertical stabilizers. They rise up from the, from the edges. They're kind of like coplanar with the back edge, the back edge, and then the two sides. And uh, they just kind of like rise up above this flat surface. Its construction is pretty cool. Um, like I said, it's lightweight. It looks monolithic, I think is the way I would describe it. <laughs> um, it really looks like it's just carved out of one chunk of something. Uh, but it actually has a steel frame. It's made out of tubular steel. Um, and then it has this shell on the outside that's wood. 
um, which is really lovely. It's actually mahogany plywood. Um, you know, they're willing to spring for the expensive mahogany plywood because they actually need this stuff to, to be highly performant. You're not going to be using particle board here. The construction budget for this aircraft was just $30,000. Um, y- yes, that's very expensive <laughs> for an airplane that's not going to do any like real work. Um, but like for something made out of mahogany <laughs> and uh, something that can actually fly, I think 30000 is not bad. Uh, granted, that's $30,1963, so maybe it's uh, more expensive than my initial uh, instinct. Uh, NASA built the steel frame themselves, uh, and then the shell, they actually asked uh, a company to come in and make it, or they asked a company to manufacture and ship it to them. Uh, that was the Briegleb Glider Company, which is a local glider manufacturer, presumably in uh, Mojave, but near Edwards Air Force Base, because that's where this flew. Uh, Briegleb had a little bit of help. Uh, Spruce, Spruce Goose craftsman Ernie Lauder uh, was uh, sent over to help them build this. Uh, the Spruce Goose is a fantastic wooden airplane, if you're not familiar with it. Because this is sort of a one-off, uh, some things they're going to have to manufacture, like this very uniquely shaped frame. Uh, but so everything else that they can borrow, they're going to borrow. Uh, so the, the landing gear is actually uh, taken out of a Cessna. And uh, yeah, so like I said, this thing flew out of uh, Dryden uh, at Edwards Air Force Base. Initially, it was piloted uh, by Milt Thompson. Um, and he actually flew this thing more times than anybody else. Um, and there were a couple of times where he actually went for four flights in a single day uh, in this vehicle. Pretty cool. (laughs) So how do you control a lifting body, right? Like I I described this thing in its entirety. There are no wings. Um, So how do you you control it? Well, there are actually a shockingly large number of of control surfaces on this thing. So those two uh, vertical stabilizers that stick up out of the back um, they have aluminum elevons on the sides and, and they're very high for elevons. Uh, they're, they're above the center pressure for sure. They're actually at about the same level as the head of the pilot. Who's like sitting up inside this domed, uh, cockpit. And then there are also two rudders, one on the back of each of the vertical stabilizers. And then there's also, um, an elevator flap. Uh, on the trailing edge of the body, uh, it kind of reminds me of a uh, shuttle's body flap. All of these uh, control surfaces were actuated by push rods. Um, and when they were designing this thing, they came up with two potential control schemes. Uh, one is pretty conventional. Uh, the pedals control the rudder and the stick controls the, uh, the elevons for the left and right stick for the roll input uh, comes from the elevons. Um, that that's normal. Then they also came in, came up with this uh, kind of odd control scheme, which is where the left and right of the stick moved the rudders back and forth. And then the pedals were used to change the difference between the elevons. And like, I'm not a hundred percent sure why they even proposed that control scheme, but Thompson uh, tried both of them out in a simulator. And he said, you know what? I like the unconventional version, the, uh, the stick to rudder configuration. And uh, he said that he liked it because um, the downside was that the roll input was a little delayed. Like you'd ask for a roll and it'd take a second for the vehicle to roll. And that delay is due to the dihedral effect. 
Um, and the di- the dihedral in this case is actually causing side slip. So these are very jargony uh, terms. You can go look them up. I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about them now, partially because it would take a while to explain properly. And partially because I'm not sure I can explain them properly. I don't, I don't know if I uh, completely understand them, but anyway, so you've got this delay, this input delay, but the upside is that the roll rate using the rudders to roll, which is bizarre, the roll rate was twice that of what the roll rate was using the elevons to roll. It's, it's just really crazy to think about a vehicle where you ask for a yaw input, you push the pedals left and right, and the thing rolls as well. Like You really have to be a good pilot to be able to fly this thing since all the control surfaces are just so high up. It brings a new meaning to the term coordinated roll. Um, now, this vehicle was an unpowered glider. So um, your first instinct is, okay, great. They hook it up behind an airplane. They tow it up to altitude and let go. But this is an experimental aircraft. And instead of going straight to the aircraft, they wanted to start a little more low key. I wrote slow key in the notes because not only uh, were they shooting for lower altitude, lower keyness, they also wanted to just go slower, right? Fewer chances to, to kill somebody. So how do you fly a glider at a bit of a lower speed? Well, they decided to tow it behind a car. And, you know, that's not like super crazy. Um, even like hobbyist gliders will use a catapult. Like there, there are a good couple of glider catapults out there. Um, but here they're, they're seriously just towing it behind a car. Uh, they picked a 1963 Pontiac Catalina convertible. It's actually a really pretty car and a car that, by the way, it's not the 1960s. It has fins as appropriate. There, there's the pylon in the back for the tow cable. And, and I think I can see like, the beginning of, of a fin on, on the back. It's, it's, I don't know, it's kind of a flat top surface where the trunk is, but, um, still looks very space age. Um, and what's really cool is, uh, the first flight was in 1963, but they actually started designing the vehicle in 1962. And I believe they purchased the tow vehicle in 1962. So they bought a brand new car right off the lot for this. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure I haven't seen anybody say that, but like the timing, it just, this has to be a new car. So they go ahead and t- tow this thing down the uh, dry lake bed at Edwards. They used a rope to connect the two, right? This isn't a, a, a fixed linkage. They want some slack and they want some bendability and they want it to be nice and long um, so that they weren't putting too much of a pitch uh, force on the vehicle. Um, and so their, their first tests, uh, they got up to 86 miles an hour or 138 kilometers per hour. Uh, that was the max speed of the car, <laughs> uh, while, while towing. And that was fast enough to get the nose of the vehicle up into the air. Um, but unfortunately it was also fast enough to get the vehicle to start bouncing back and forth on its main gear. I don't, I don't know how high up each wheel got, but it sounds like it was pretty violent and pretty uncontrolled. Um, Thompson fixed it uh, just by putting the nose back down. But every time he pulled up on the stick, uh, he was getting this thing bouncing back and forth like a carnival ride. So they, you know, they head back to the hangar and Thompson says, look, this is a gear issue. The gear is too springy uh, or it's, you know, wobbling or something. And he says, the gear is bouncing me back and forth. And that means that if I try to lift off in this thing 
and we're just bouncing from one side to the other, or one wheel contacts the ground and bounces me over, it could flip the whole thing onto its back, uh, which is really terrifying. They shot footage while they were doing this, this low speed tow test. And they decided that the issue was actually probably related to the control scheme. And I'm assuming what they were doing was watching the control surfaces resonate with these bounces. And so they actually just swapped everything back uh, to the uh, the pedal to rudder configuration and everything was fine from there on. It's really crazy that what was causing this vehicle to bounce was just the instincts of the pilot. Um, you know, the pilot goes, I know how to fix this. I apply roll to cancel roll. And it, it, it actually did the exact opposite of what it was supposed to do. So, right, the, the tow car, even after they fixed the bouncing issue, the car was not fast enough to get the vehicle up into the air, to get the M2F2 into the air, M2F1 into the air. And so, you know what they did? They hot-rotted it. Um, NASA sent this thing out to um, an auto mechanic. I, I think the guy actually might have been like a, a race car tuner, um, but he, he retuned the engine. Uh, they also installed a roll bar, which seems very smart. Um, and they took the passenger seat and turned it around backwards. And there's some really lovely photos of people um, driving down the dry lake bed facing backwards um, and like they could fit a driver in the driver's seat, a passenger in the front seat, and then a, a second passenger in the, in the back seat. And they could, they had to turn sideways in the bench, but it's, it's really a, a cool vehicle that is now like super fancy and fast. And so they were able to get their tow speeds up to 110 miles an hour. That's 180 kilometers per hour. And that was fast enough to get the, the, the aircraft off of its wheels and into the air behind a car. Like it's so cool. <laughs> this is really, really slick. I just love, I just love that they didn't stop when they're like, yeah, the car's not fast enough. It's like, well, this car with this engine isn't fast enough. Let's <laughs> this car with this engine isn't fast enough, but if we, retune it. We can, we can get more performance out of this engine. One thing that surprised me when looking for this topic last week was that this was possible at all, because first of all, it's a car, you know, that's pulling this thing to the necessary speeds, but also it's a lifting body. Sure. But it doesn't really, really even have wings. I mean, it barely does. Right. So it seems to me like that shouldn't fly. And that kind of confuses me. I guess I don't know as much about, yeah. you know, like aerodynamics as I think I do, yeah. but like, how does this thing fly being towed by a car? Yeah. That seems incredible. Well, to me. So like you said, it does doesn't have wings. It's not that it has small wings. The things that look like wings are actually control surfaces. Yeah. That whole thing moves. So it doesn't, I mean, it's providing lift, but it's not, it doesn't count as a wing. And yeah, like, right, a, a lifting body vehicle is really crazy. The fact that if you just make the whole thing into the right shape, you can get some lift. Uh, you can shove enough air downward. And we'll, we'll talk about what this entails, but the shortened the short and simple version is it doesn't fly particularly well <laughs> is what it comes down to. It doesn't look like it should fly at all. And it breaks the laws of physics by flying at all, uh, but it does not fly well. All right. So behind their souped up hot rod, uh, they were able to get this thing 20 feet, that's six meters into the air, uh, which like you're saying, David seems crazy. Um, <laughs> they got it up 20 meters and they could, even release the tow cable and glide back down. Um, and from 20 feet in the air, they could glide for 20 seconds. So if you're falling at one foot per second and you're going forward at 161 feet per second, that's actually not a bad glide slope. 
obviously the glide slope gets worse yeah. as you slow down due to drag, but that's actually, that's shockingly good for uh, how bathtubby this thing looks. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, th this thing, uh, it sinks fast, right? Like a, f a foot per second is the best glide you can do. That's, that's really not a, a wonderful ratio, uh, but it's good enough. So after they did the ground toes, they decided to go for uh, the more traditional air tow vehicle. And they picked uh, a NASA C-47, which is also known as the R-4D, which is also known as the Skytrain. Now, the C-47 is NASA's designation for this vehicle. There are additional designations, one for each military service, I believe. <laughs> um, but the rest of us know this vehicle as a DC-3. Uh, I think many more people are going to know what a DC-3 is than an R4D. So uh, before they did their uh, their airplane tows, uh, they installed an ejection seat, very wise. They also installed an RTL system. RTL is not an acronym that actually exists in the world, but it stands for Rocket Assisted Landing. So this is the opposite of an what is an RTA? Rocket Assisted Takeoff. What's what's the oh, acronym for? It's JATO, right? Jet Assisted JATO. There you go. Jet Assisted Takeoff. So I guess this would be JTAL. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Rocket Assisted Landing. And th these are not rockets to break the vehicle, which has been done in like a JATO. Um, these are rockets that point... Uh, backwards that push you forward in order to help you land kind of crazy um, there's a wonderful photo um, showing the rocket nozzles coming out of the back of the vehicle honestly uh, where the rockets are placed makes this thing look like a boat more than anything else and the label above it says instant ld uh, l over d uh, which <laughs> refers to um, the lift over drag ratio and so the idea is that you can fire these guys and get yourself a little bit of extra a, a little bit of extra l l over d uh, you can reduce your drag um, and extend your landing flare about five seconds, um, which could be critical. And they did use these things. Um, not every landing used them. They only used them when they really thought they needed to, uh, but they did use them. Rocket assisted landing is so crazy. So we got to rewind back before they get to the point where they're using rockets to land. And so their air tow missions, uh, they, they towed them to somewhere between 100 and 120 miles an hour, that's uh, 160 to 190 kilometers per hour. And they took them up to 12,000 feet. So there is a little bit of an issue, like towing this vehicle <laughs> behind a DC-3 isn't the easiest thing to do in the world. So um, if you think about the shape of this flying bathtub, you can imagine that its angle of attack is pretty darn high. Um, and so if you're sitting in the cockpit and your your head is above this flat plane, um, your forward visibility is basically zero. So what, what they did is there's also an additional window that's in the nose of the airplane. To modern sensibilities, it looks like a camera pod, um, like for a spy airplane or something. But it, it's there so they can like look down and forward, right? Because it's lower than their head, so they're having to look down and forward to be able to see where they're landing. Um, but it's also like 
the only way that they can see in front of them while they're flying. It's really crazy. Um, and so during these air tows, um, they had to fly the M2F1 about 10 feet or six meters higher up than the SkyTrain that's towing it in order to be able to see like the relative attitude so they can actually follow uh, their tow, their tow vehicle. Just, <laughs> it's really crazy, uh, really crazy thing to do. So, right. Like I said, they towed them up to 12,000 feet um, and then they let go and they start to plummet out of the sky. Like we can call it falling with style, but it's uh, hardly flying. Um, the glider descended at a, at a descent rate of 3,600 feet per minute. Uh, just, I mean, it, it's better than a brick, uh, but not by much. So uh, once they get down to about 1,000 feet, um, they drop the nose and go into a dive. Uh, they want to pick up speed. And, and their dive is like a 20 degree dive. Uh, this is like roller coaster territory, right? Um, and so they, they get their speed up to about 150 miles an hour or 240 kilometers per hour. And they just, they dive straight at the earth and they get up to 150 miles at about 150 miles per hour at about 200 feet. And at 200 feet is when they pull the nose up and do their landing flare. I wasn't able to find any footage of these things landing. And uh, it sounds terrifying. I'll bet that somebody's done some really cool footage in a modern uh, flight simulator that would be fun to watch. So, right, the the lifting body uh, experimental flight program as a whole uh, is is really interesting and, and definitely not a minor part of NASA's history. M2F1 flew 77 uh, towed flights behind an airplane, 77 towed flights over three years. Um, some notable people flew the vehicle. Uh, mostly, m- most of the flights uh, were piloted by uh, Milt Thompson. Sorry, I had to find his name again, Milt Thompson. Uh, but Fred Hayes and Joe Engel both did uh, a single flight each uh, behind the Pontiac. Um, Chuck Yeager of uh, breaking the uh, the sound barrier fame uh, did at least five flights. A pilot named Gerald Gentry, which is just a really good superhero name. Um, Mm -hmm. Gentry did two flights. And unfortunately, this guy rolled the vehicle on both liftoffs. Um, Both times he successfully recovered to put it back down on the ground. But like that was like the end of the flight. Uh, There's he landed it and went, nope. Okay. We're done <laughs> as, mm-hmm. as he should. And you know, they probably have to check it for damage. I'm not saying he's being a chicken or anything. I'm just saying like you start to roll the vehicle, you put it down on the ground. That's the prudent thing to do. So, like I said, uh, they flew the vehicle for three years and then they put it into storage. What's really cool is that they put it in the same storage hangar and right next to the LLRV uh, LLRV, the, the lunar landing training s- real life simulator, the one with a jet engine in the middle, uh, that simulated, uh, landings in the LEM. There are photos of M2F1 sitting right next to LLRV in a hangar, really a very uh, prestigious hangar in my opinion. Um, and it, it was kept in storage. They showed it off to some people, you know, if, if you had an in, you could get uh, a tour and get access to this thing, but it was kept away from the public, basically just in storage. And in 2015, they actually pulled it out and put it into a museum uh, at Edwards. 
And um, I have not lived at Edwards Air Force Base since 2002. So this was long after I left, but I've been back since 2015. I've been on base since 2015, and I didn't realize that I could go see this thing. Um, and I would really like to, so I'm going to have to keep it in mind next time I'm in Southern California. Um, the lifting body program, uh, continued on with M2F2 and HL10, which maybe is even better known. Um, and NASA's lifting body program paved the way for vehicles like X24 and shuttle. It is, uh, it, it's really cool to see the heritage of this like so ugly it's beautiful kind of vehicle um I, I i really like this vehicle all right so that's uh this week in space flight history cool yeah flying bathtub all right <laughs> flying bathtub. who would have thunk all right well thank you ben for that wonderful twist if uh i don't know if we're gonna get another opportunity to talk about a lifting body being towed by a pontiac uh i don't think that's mm. quite quite a unique <laughs> twist if to say the least. David, next week is the 11th to the 17th of April. Do you have a clue for us? I do. So a little modification on my last clue from my last twist. Uh, this one is in 2016, storage on orbit. Mm. Storage on orbit. Storage on orbit. Okay. Well, you can uh, recycle the clue, but you will not want to recycle your answer because this is in 2016. <laughs> and uh, if you think you know what the answer is, you can send us an email or tweet at us with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Good luck. Okay, so let's do just three upcoming spaceflight events. Of that, just two launches and possibly only one. <laughs> <laughs> So, so possibly launching, uh, we might have uh, from last week, it's been delayed a bit, evidently, but the uh, Hyperbola 1 rocket from iSpace, uh, Chinese private company iSpace. And so, uh, again, this is an unspecified payload, but uh, from NOTAMs, it looks like we've got a window of it launching on Wednesday, April 5th. Uh, from somewhere between 0354 to 0625 UTC, uh, flying out of Jiuquan in China. And then after that, on the 6th, we have the coverage of the relocation of the Soyuz uh, MS-23 spacecraft. So this is being relocated from the Poise module to the Prechal module. So the undocking will happen at 4.42 a.m., and that's Eastern, and the redocking to Prechal will happen at 5.21 Eastern time. So, yep, you can watch that on NASA TV. And the coverage begins at 4.15 a.m. I'm not sure if I mentioned that, but yeah, the actual undocking doesn't begin until 442. I love these relocations. Right. So last up, we have a Falcon 9 Block 5 launching Intelsat 40E. This is a communication satellite. You know, we, we know Intelsat. Um, but also on board the vehicle is pretty cool is NASA's uh, tropospheric emissions monitoring of pollution experiment, which is uh, Tempo. Uh, that's a bonus instrument uh, <laughs> that's flying on this uh, on this vehicle. Pretty cool. Uh, so this is going to be launching Friday, April 7th. Uh, the window runs from 0429 UTC to 0717 UTC. Um, and it's such a long window because they are going to geostationary orbit. Okie doke. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. And so with that, let's do it with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. 
Thank you so much to Mike, Cy Kyle, Colin, Delta V, Jonesy, and Chris, a.k.a. Sty Garfield, for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information about this episode, such as show notes, and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for vision patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it, and we will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.